hello, you're a failure as a person because you're stupid. It doesn't matter how much you study. It won't matter because you'll still be stupid. If you have ADHD, there's nothing you can do about it. Just give up. I mean, why put yourself through any more of this since it's also outside your control? Thomas Edison, Richard Branson, John F. Kennedy, Mozart, Michael Jordan, Will Smith. That sounds like a list of highly successful titans in a variety of vocations. Why is it that we rarely hear that they have or had ADHD? And you know what we hear even less about? Serena Williams, Emma Watson, Mel Robbins, Whoopi Goldberg, Agatha Christie, Aaron Brockovich, Cher. Yeah, the successful women navigating ADHD. And that's exactly why I started this podcast, ADHD for Smartass Women. I'm your host, Tracy Atsuka. I'm a lawyer, not a doctor, a lifelong student, now a coach. I'm also the creator of Your ADHD Brain is A-OK, a system that helps people like you figure out what they should do with their life. And we're here today to talk ADHD, your strengths, your symptoms, your workarounds, and how you proudly stand out instead of trying to fit in. I credit my ADHD for some of my greatest gifts. And you know what? I spy a happier life for you too. So without further ado, a shiny new episode is starting now. Hello, I'm Tracy Atsuka. Thank you so much for joining me here for episode number 194 of ADHD for Smartass Women. I hope you will subscribe to this podcast and our newsletter over at tracyoutsuka.com. You know my purpose. It's always to show you who you are and then inspire you to be it. In the thousands of ADHD women that I've had the privilege of meeting, I've never met a one that wasn't truly brilliant at something. Not one, and that includes you. So before we start today's podcast, I want to share a few podcast reviews. I really want to acknowledge you for taking the time to write your reviews. I know no one of us ever has enough time, so I appreciate you immensely. And you know what? They really do help spread the word so that we can reach even more ADHD women. Clarissa, she made it short and sweet. Great podcast with a bunch of emojis and two explanation points. Thank you so much, Clarissa. I appreciate you. Is it an exclamation point or is it just an exclamation mark? Whatever. Okay, this one's from Steph Calderon. I was diagnosed with ADHD in my early 20s, but wasn't really given much more information or guidance after that. Growing up, I always felt like I was smart, but struggled so hard in school in any subject that wasn't interesting to me. Now in my 30s, after listening to this podcast, it has helped me to identify my ADHD traits and learn how to use them to my benefit. I found this podcast around the same time I launched my own business two plus years ago, and it's truly helped me to excel in a way I never could have before. Oh, Steph, I'm so happy to hear this. 
From Tracy and her guests on this podcast, I have not only learned the daily tips and tricks I've needed to stay on track and motivated in my business and everyday life, but more importantly, I've learned to give myself grace on days when it's not so easy. I hate that it's taken me so long to write a review for a podcast that has done so much for me and those I've shared it with, although I think we can all relate to unintentionally putting something off, laughing face emoji. I just appreciate you, Steph. Hey, you took the time and you did it and it's done. And now I'm talking about it. So I hope that gives you a little bit more dopamine that it was all worth it because it was. Okay, let me keep going. Thank you again for all that you're doing to bring positivity and guidance to those of us with ADHD. I feel like I found my tribe and truly don't know where I'd be without this podcast. Yours truly, Stephanie. Stephanie, I love that review. Thank you so much and keep doing it. Uh, The next one is from GR33NBEM. And it says, so happy, dot, dot, dot. So happy after being diagnosed with ADHD as a teenager and given medication as the only solution, this podcast has opened my eyes to a wealth of information that has been allowing me to connect the dots in my life and become my own advocate. My ADHD hack is listening to this podcast when I clean. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I love that. Thank you. GR33NBE at M. Okay, so thank you all for your reviews. I so appreciate it. And you all did very long reviews, so you took a lot of time. So you get extra gold stars. The other thing is, have you all noticed that Google has finally got it right? I noticed a couple weeks ago when I voice type ADHD, I no longer get ADHD. So yay, Google. Okay, so let's get into our topic for today. So you all know, I am a make lemonade out of lemons kind of woman. And I think because of that, and because of the fact that I did not have any developmental trauma growing up, I felt like I was not the right person to really talk about ADHD and trauma. But as some of you know, I am writing a book for Harper Collins Morrow, which I'm super excited about, and I feel so privileged to be able to spend the time to do this. You know, that's the beauty of writing a book, right? It forces you to really learn about some of the areas of your area of interest that maybe you're not as interested in. And it wasn't that I wasn't interested in it. It's that you know, my motto is always do no harm, right? And I wanted to make sure that if I was going to by myself talk about trauma, as you all know, I've had many experts come in and talk about trauma, but I've never actually talked about it just by myself in a solo podcast. And so I had to do a hell of a lot of research. And so I feel like I'm finally qualified to at least talk about it because there's so much that I've learned that I never knew and I just feel called to share with you. So we're going to start with ADHD and trauma. So I met Isabel Baker when she was 59. She had over 25 years of business development, C-suite partnerships and enterprise training experience. And she she was depressed and she was tired of working for others. 
So she joined my Your ADHD Brain is A-OK program in an effort to figure out what she was going to do with her life, right? But also to understand her ADHD brain better. She had been informally diagnosed with ADHD by a psychologist friend a decade before. And when she got the diagnosis, she was like, you know what? ADHD really does fit me to a T. Still, in her mind, it defined everything that was wrong with her, and it explained why she was a broken person, right? All her workarounds, they were an attempt to hide who she was and cover up her ADHD. She believed that it was too late and that happiness was just never hers to have. In her words, that was for other people, not me. As a child, Isabel had been called a daydreamer, lazy, a quitter. Her mother told her she'd never finish anything because she was too emotional and she wasn't very smart. School was so hard for Isabel. She repeated the 10th grade. She would get hit by her teachers because she couldn't sit still. Oh my gosh, I cannot believe that went on. Isabel believed that there was something terribly wrong with her, and she had so much shame about all of it. But there was more. Isabel was neglected and abused by her mother as a child. She didn't know where the ADHD symptoms began and the trauma ended, or the trauma symptoms began and the ADHD ended, the ADHD symptoms ended, but she knew that the combination left her feeling ostracized and alone even after she had spent years working with professionals on her trauma. She still, she just thought everything was her fault. In my experience, the women that really struggle with ADHD and RSD, rejection-sensitive dysphoria, we've talked about it in so many different podcasts, but it's just this idea that we feel so criticized and rejected because of our experiences with ADHD that everything that happens, we filter through that lens. So we know that exposure to stressful events or experiences, they can cause trauma at any time during a person's life. But as we'll discover, it's much worse the younger we are. Whether or not the trauma becomes chronic PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder with persistent symptoms of nightmares and flashbacks and emotional dysregulation or hypervigilance, that's unique to the person, meaning that what causes you trauma may not cause me trauma and vice versa. However, even if a traumatic event doesn't cause PTSD, it can cause nervous system dysregulation and symptoms such as difficulty concentrating, poor memory, anxiety, depression, poor sleep, impulsivity, substance abuse, etc., etc. I think that I should be saying that that is substance use disorder. That all sounds a lot like ADHD, doesn't it? So let's start with what is considered trauma. Like, how do you know it's trauma? Well, studies show that people with ADHD score higher on the Adverse Childhood Experiences Questionnaire. It's called ACEs. You can Google this. We'll, we'll put a link in the show notes too, but you can Google this and you can find this 10-question survey. So ACEs, it's a 10-question survey, and what it does is it measures potentially traumatic events that occur prior to the age of 18 and have a negative effect on health and well-being. So the higher the score, it's 0 through 10, the more childhood trauma the person has experienced. 
ACEs includes, but isn't limited to, number one, abuse, and that would be psychological, physical, or sexual abuse. Number two would be neglect, and that would be emotional or physical neglect. Number three is household dysfunction, and that can include substance use, um, mental illness, domestic violence, divorce. I didn't think divorce would cause trauma, but clearly it does for some kids. And then finally, incarceration. So if you have a parent who was in jail, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, ACEs scores are linked to chronic health problems, mental illness, and substance use problems in adolescence and adulthood. When the body is constantly under stress, it releases adrenaline, which triggers the fight or flight response and the stress hormone cortisol. Studies show that this toxic stress can affect brain development in children. The areas of the brain that involve fear, anxiety, and impulsivity may overproduce neural connections, while the areas dedicated to reasoning, planning, and behavioral control, that happens in the prefrontal cortex, right? they may produce fewer neural connections. ACEs can also negatively impact education, job opportunities, and earning potential. Still, not everyone with a high ACEs score struggles. ACEs scores don't take into account positive experiences in life that build resilience and protect a child from the effects of trauma. This would include having a grandparent or a good friend or a teacher who takes a real interest in you as a child. So does it matter when the childhood trauma occurs? You know, we often hear, and I, I remember, you know, female friends of mine saying things like, you know, they may have been in an abusive relationship and they'd say, you know, I'm going to leave once the kids are old enough to know what's going on because they believe that the child is so young that they won't remember, so they won't be affected by the violence. Unfortunately, that's not true. Our earliest experiences actually have the most impact because this is when the baby's brain is growing the fastest. In fact, a child who experiences trauma in the first two months of her life, but is then moved to a stable home environment for the next 12 years, she will typically fare worse than a child who has stability and nurturing care for the first two months of her life and then instability for the remaining 12 years. Because of how the child's brain develops, timing is everything when it comes to trauma. Children who don't feel safe in infancy, they have trouble regulating their moods and emotional responses as they grow older. Infants need stable, consistent nurturing during their earliest years in order to be able to develop healthy relationships. As they grow, all their experiences shape the way their brain is organized and functions. If they have consistent nurturing care, they learn that when they cry, someone's going to come feed them, right? Their mom or their dad. Someone will play with them. Someone will change their diaper when they're wet. In this way, parents teach children how to regulate their bodies. Initially, they don't know how to do it for themselves, right? Babies don't know how to do that. But over time, they learn that when I cry, someone's going to come and take care of me. This is how babies start to put together their story that the world is good. And they're able to do this if their interactions in life are generally good. Interactions with their caretakers, right? Their primary caretakers. So if care isn't stable, consistent, and nurturing, 
the infant's brain is going to organize around a different worldview. In that world, people aren't to be trusted or relied upon, and that child learns to believe that they're unworthy of love. After all, they must be a horrible person if even their own parents don't love them. That's what they think, right? Of course, these beliefs are going to affect self-esteem and what they believe they deserve, which will also, in turn, influence their future relationships. So that begs the question, can trauma cause ADHD? Research doesn't support the fact that trauma directly causes ADHD. However, as we discussed earlier, we don't really know what exactly causes ADHD. Studies, however, do show that women with ADHD are more likely to have experienced trauma. For example, 30% of ADHD women report that they were sexually abused before the age of 18. 44% of women with ADHD report that they have experienced childhood physical abuse as compared to 21% of neurotypical women. What we do know, however, is that trauma mimics symptoms of ADHD, and it impacts the same areas of the brain affected by ADHD, especially the cortex. For both trauma and ADHD, this means less emotional regulation, less verbal and behavioral impulse control, and more reactivity. This may look like poor working memory, difficulties concentrating and learning at school, disorganization and inability to focus, difficulty sleeping, restlessness, distractibility. So although research doesn't support the fact that trauma directly causes ADHD, there's no question that traumatic stress worsens ADHD symptoms. So Can untreated ADHD cause trauma? I actually believe that it can. Look, if you are constantly being admonished for being lazy and disorganized and stupid growing up by not only students, teachers, and coaches, but also your parents and friends for behaviors over which you had little control, you can imagine how that would affect your self-concept and generate feelings of shame, worthlessness, and anger. You know, most women, they don't even know that it's ADHD. They don't know that they have ADHD, right? They believe that they have a moral failing or a character flaw. Feeling this way over something you have little control over and you don't understand, that's what creates daily chronic stress, which triggers our fight-or-flight response. A childhood of feeling stupid, lazy, and too much creates a nervous system that's always on high alert because it's constantly waiting for that next thing that someone is going to tell us that we're doing wrong. Over time, our brains become rewired, which is what creates a dysregulated nervous system. The body also over time learns to treat everything it encounters as a threat, and we then create our own fixed action pattern. We see a threat, and perhaps the way we react is with a clenched jaw, or an accelerated heart rate, or shallow breathing, a feeling of being on edge. Our nervous system learns to respond as if past events are now happening in the present, even when the experience doesn't warrant this response. I just got off a podcast interview with a truly brilliant and delightful woman. Right before we ended, and She's not the first one who said things like this. I kind of hear this quite a bit now that I think about it. 
Anyway, right before we ended, she said, Tracy, I am so sorry. I think I talked way too much. And the funny thing is that during this interview, she told me about being pulled aside by a professor in a class she was taking during college. And her professor told her she needed to stop talking so that other students would have a chance to talk. And this young woman explained to me that she would always speak up when her professor called for comments when there was dead silence. She felt so badly for him standing up there, she needed to help him by breaking the silence. Clearly, it was her empathy in those cases that caused her to speak up. Still, 15 years later, she was still worried about how much she talked. She felt too much, and I'm certain that professor situation was only one of many, many instances where she was made to feel the same way. So I responded to her with this email after the fact. Thank you so much for joining me on my podcast. I was just thinking about your comment that you were worried that you talked too much. I'm sure this thought is left over from that professor and a life of being so smart, so curious, and so empathetic. I wanted to share with you my actual thoughts about you at the time. She's so smart, opinionated, and thoughtful in her responses, and she doesn't let people put words in her mouth. It's very important for her to be understood. I could talk to her all day. She's a great podcast guest, truly. I mean, who doesn't want a podcast guest that talks a lot, right? It would be so awkward if she didn't share her experiences, if she let me do all the talking. Heaven knows I do enough of that, right? In my experience, rejection-sensitive dysphoria, RSD, remember, is the result of all of these years of trauma. We become so sensitive to rejection and criticism that our dysregulated nervous system and rewired brain anticipate it even when no one is rejecting us because our past history is stronger than our current reality. Beyond that, if you've also been dismissed by medical professionals who don't understand what ADHD looks like in women, you've been misdiagnosed with anxiety and or depression or worse, You've struggled in social relationships and have never felt a sense of true belonging. You can understand how an ADHD woman would manifest RSD as a trauma response. Sadly, it's the emotional reactivity from feeling rejected and criticized that so many ADHD women struggle the most with. Often it comes out of nowhere, so these women feel little control over their emotions. If society frowns upon emotional outbursts from men, it positively abhors it in women. So instead, ADHD women turn those emotional outbursts inwards on themselves. The ADHD women who are able to use their ADHD strengths often are those who did well in school, so they didn't have a whole lot of criticism around their education in their childhood, right? And they don't have developmental trauma. That doesn't mean that ADHD women who struggled in school and do have childhood trauma can't do well. You've heard so many of them on this podcast, right? But the thing is, it is harder for them. So how else can trauma affect us? Early on in my coaching career, I was working with a small group of women, and they were so excited about working together, and they all expressed interest in moving their lives forward. We would meet every week and Week after week, most of them would show up having done none of their work. And that didn't square with how excited they were about figuring out these answers to 
you know, that what do I do with my life question. But I literally felt like I was dragging these women to the finish line. They seemed to want to move forward, but they literally couldn't. All I would hear about is how they couldn't do the work. They didn't know where we were in the program. They couldn't find the links. They didn't know where the worksheets were. Some of them would show up every single week trying to get others to do their work for them. They wouldn't even try. They had given up. You know, at the time, I knew very little about trauma. And so I was so frustrated as these sessions would go on for hours. And I struggle with long Zoom meetings. Frankly, I struggle with any Zoom meetings. And I was literally ready to pull my hair out and probably theirs too. (laughs) I soon learned that the way people view the negative things that have happened to them can have an impact on whether they feel helpless or not. Martin Seligman, he's a psychologist and the godfather of the positive psychology movement. You've heard me talking about him before. And you know, he grew tired of the field of psychology and how everything was pathologized. The DSM, which stands for the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, after all, (laughs) I love that name. The DSM, after all, was completely focused on what is wrong with you? And so Seligman wanted to focus on what was right and what you had control over. Seligman was also the president of the American Psychological Association, and he helped create the Via Character Strengths Test, which I've talked about many times in my podcast. So Martin Seligman coined the concept of learned helplessness. Learned helplessness is a state that occurs After a person has experienced a stressful situation repeatedly, and they come to believe that they can't control or change the situation, so they don't even try, even when change is clearly possible. His research taught me that specific attributes caused learned helplessness. Number one, feeling like you're a failure as a person because you believe that you're stupid. Number two, believing that that attribution can't change, meaning it doesn't matter how much you study, it won't matter because you'll still be stupid. And number three, the belief that you're not just stupid in math or science. No, you're stupid in everything. You're stupid across the board. In other words, if you have ADHD and you've been made to feel that this means that somehow you're stupid, you're going to start to believe that you're stupid. And you're going to believe that there's nothing you can do about it. And beyond being stupid in math, you believe that you're stupid in everything. You're stupid in paying bills. You're stupid in showing up on time. You're stupid in reading. Can't you see why someone who believes this might just give up? I mean, why put yourself through any more of this since it's also outside your control? That's what you think, right? No matter what you do, you don't think your efforts will make a difference at all. Your brain was just born stupid, and it becomes the self-fulfilling prophecy. No matter what happens, you see everything through the lens of, I can't do this, I'm just not smart enough, I'm stupid. You believe that your ADHD makes you stupid, and sadly, a lot of women diagnosed with ADHD are made to believe exactly that. And even more terrifying are the clinicians who add to this belief. Remember my son's psychologist, a supposed expert in ADHD, who told us, we as his parents need to reduce his expectations because if we don't, Marcus, my son, is going to be disappointed in life. 
she obviously thought he wasn't very smart. She thought he was stupid. And the thing is, all she had to do was listen to him talk, and she would know clearly this kid is not stupid. He's actually very bright, but she had bought off on a theory of ADHD and subsequent pathology. And since that's what she knew, that's where she was going. And she wasn't the only one. You know, before Marcus was diagnosed with ADHD, another psychologist, this one from Yale, told us that Marcus was bordering on delusion because he wanted to solve the black hole paradox. He had this little notebook and he would make all these little calculations and he was reading everything he could find about it. He was nine years old. The fact that he even knew what the black hole was at nine blew my mind because I don't know about you, but I still have no idea what the black hole paradox even is. And for me, I thought he was hilarious and brilliant. And she got so mad at me for not taking this seriously. So, Now that I've gone off on a tangent, where should we go next? Okay. How about if we talk about how trauma can also cause disassociation? So when Isabel started our AOK program, she had every intention of completing it. After all, she was on a mission, right? She was going to figure out what she wanted to do with her life. At least that's what she was really hoping for. Unfortunately, what AOK required of Isabel was to reflect back on her parents' values. And given her trauma history, this was plenty uncomfortable for Isabel, despite the fact that she had done a lot of therapy around her trauma. Often with trauma, what happens is children learn how to disassociate when they feel threatened. They can't just move out to get away from the violence and cruelty, right? They're way too little. So instead, what they do is they escape to their inner world and they try their best to just fade into the background. For many of us with ADHD, we may call it daydreaming or hyperfocus or creativity. So it's not all bad. But if as a result of trauma, you dissociate for long periods of time, you develop a desensitized dissociative response to any challenge. The minute things get difficult, the minute you're uncomfortable, you just check out. Speaking of checking out, I think I've been saying disassociative. It's dissociative. There's no extra A. I do that a lot. It's why I had myself tested for dyslexia. No, I am not dyslexic. Although sometimes I think they might've gotten it wrong and I may be on the very, very, very end of the spectrum. Okay. So what happens is these women learn to stay away from conflict, right? If they're confronted, they become compliant. They tell people what they want to hear and they mirror their behavior to fit in with whomever they're with at any given time. So just like a chameleon, they blend into their current environment. Over time and after years of behaving this way, they don't have a clue who they are or what's really important to them. They just go along to get along, becoming whomever their current partner, relatives, or friends want them to be. They become people pleasers. So Isabel stayed stuck for a couple weeks, not moving past step one. And finally, she decided independently that what would work for her is to just skip step one and move on to step two. And that was a great call on Isabel's part because in the following steps, she learned more about her ADHD brain and its strengths. Until then, she hadn't understood her ADHD, so she still believed she was defective, lazy, and unmotivated. 
Look, she had seen glimpses of her brilliance over her lifetime, but it wasn't consistent. So she still thought, this must mean that I'm just not as smart as I'd like to be. She never considered that perhaps ADHD had imbued her with amazing strengths alongside its challenges. And the more she learned about herself and her ADHD, the more her shame dissipated. Once that happened and she learned that she was far from defective and that her brain just needed a different operating system to optimally function, she started to see her amazing skills and gifts. The only thing that was different is that Isabel started to see Isabel differently. She now had hope. And she was able to go back to step one and complete the program. So now let's talk about how familiarity makes us feel safe and how trauma can play into this. As human beings, we like familiarity. When things feel familiar, we feel safe. As I mentioned above, if you believe that people are good, you're going to project that goodness onto others who are likely to reciprocate and reinforce your worldview, right? The world is good. Unfortunately, if your home and environment were littered with chaos and violence, your worldview will likely be that others can't be trusted. And because this is how you act, because this is what you believe, your worldview is going to be reinforced. If you're treating other people as if they can't be trusted, they're going to be like, what's going on with her? So they're not going to trust you either, right? This also means that if you enter into a relationship with someone who treats you well, your worldview that the world is unsafe and people can't be trusted, it's going to be threatened. And you know what? That will likely make you uncomfortable. So uncomfortable that you might sabotage the relationship because feeling happy and calm feels so unfamiliar to you that it feels unsafe. So what effect do you think this developmental trauma would have on an ADHD girl, teen, or woman? If she's in school and she's already struggling with her ADHD symptoms, you can see how her developmental trauma will just make her symptoms worse, right? That much worse. She may grow increasingly frustrated and create chaos with adults in positions of authority because that just feels more comfortable and familiar to her. She may not trust that other teachers or students have her best interest in mind. Perhaps she'll attribute ill will towards other girls or women when it's not there. Her impulsivity might cause her to gravitate towards social relationships that don't serve her, but because they're familiar, she feels safer. After all, that's what she knows. That's what she grew up with. You can see how developmental trauma could exacerbate her already sizable ADHD symptoms, and or her ADHD symptoms could exacerbate her developmental trauma symptoms. And over time, this could send her down a hole that she can't dig herself out of. You know, there's also so much overlap in symptoms between ADHD and trauma that trauma is often misdiagnosed as ADHD. So how do clinicians tell the difference between ADHD and trauma when both affect the same areas of the brain and can cause the same symptoms? It's easier when the trauma occurs later in life because you can assess whether the ADHD symptoms were present before the trauma, 
or not, right? It's much harder if the trauma happened in childhood, but the short answer is that clinicians need to ask questions about trauma whenever they're assessed for ADHD. This means it's important to work with a clinician who understands both trauma and ADHD. That begs the question, if there's trauma and ADHD, which one do you treat first? Most clinicians will suggest that you treat both. Think about it. If you work on the ADHD to the exclusion of the trauma, the trauma may rear its head and prevent any progress that's been made in treating the ADHD and vice versa. So yes, early childhood trauma changes the biology of the brain, but early childhood support also changes the biology of the brain. Studies of resilience show that even one secure relationship with another adult in the child's life can make a huge difference in recovery. We can physically see trauma in before and after images of the brain, but we can also see repair that happens in that same brain after treatment. So where do we start? Often medication is a good place to start because it's a well-researched treatment for both ADHD and sometimes trauma. If medication works, focus and emotional regulation, they're going to come online, right? Which makes therapy for trauma and ADHD that much more effective. Antidepressants can also lessen emotional extremes. Connection is enormously therapeutic and healing. The best predictor of your current mental health is your current relational health, but you have to choose your form of connection wisely. You know, today we have more opportunities to connect via social media, text, email, et cetera, with people from all over the world, right? We are bombarded daily with information overload, fake news, online bullying, which is frankly overwhelming to our ADHD brains that unfortunately and fortunately love what's bright, new, and shiny. All of this kind of connection, though, has kind of caused us to disconnect. Not just women with ADHD. No, we're all suffering from this disease of disconnection. The typical college-age student is 30% less empathic and more absorbed than 20 years ago. This makes them less resilient and more likely to suffer from anxiety, depression, and suicide. And sadly, This is across all socioeconomic levels. However, what I've seen firsthand is the importance of a community in all the work that I do to help women fall in love with their ADHD brains. And this absolutely includes online groups. It's interesting, but once you get to know one brilliant ADHD woman, and then a second, and then a third, you start to think, wait, If all these ADHD women are so amazing, then by default, since I'm part of their community, I must be pretty amazing too, right? Psychotherapy is also an important resource, especially psychotherapy that teaches the skills needed to manage emotional dysregulation. That would include cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT, dialectical behavior therapy, DBT, mindfulness and somatic therapies like eye movement desensitization reprocessing, you know it as, or you might know it as EMDR, which helps to reconnect the brain and body. These kinds of somatic therapies have proven to be effective therapies for co-occurring ADHD and trauma. Neither ADHD nor trauma is your fault. These aren't moral failings or character flaws that need to be hidden. 
Shame is a component of both trauma and ADHD, and we just need to eradicate it. You know, what is shareable is bearable. Best of all, what I have seen in my experience working with ADHD women is that our best purpose gives meaning to our past. So often women are shamed into hiding their trauma and their ADHD when really that does nothing more than send the message to themselves that they're defective and disordered. Today, Isabel uses the wisdom she's gained from her own trauma to guide other women towards healing. She knows intuitively of what she speaks, so it's no surprise that she's one of the best trauma-informed ADHD coaches that I have the privilege of knowing. As I mentioned, I have done a lot of research on trauma over the last year. Two of my favorite resources are Bruce Perry um, and Oprah Winfrey's book, What Happened to You? Conversations on Trauma, Resilience, and Healing. They are both such good storytellers, and it really allowed me to understand what is going on in the brain of uh, children who suffer from developmental trauma. The other book that I highly recommend which is um, kind of the Bible on trauma, I would say. The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk. And it's titled The Body Keeps the Score, Brain, Mind, and Body in the Healing of Trauma. And I'll have those links in our show notes, as well as several others. So that's what I have for you for today. If you like this episode, please let me know by leaving a review. Our goal is to change the conversation around ADHD, helping as many women as we possibly can learn how their ADHD brains work so that they too may discover their amazing strengths. And your reviews, they really do help in that regard. I can't tell you how much I appreciate you and the fact that you show up every week. Recording this podcast is one of my most favorite things that I do. So thank you for listening. As always, You're listening to ADHD for Smartass Women, so come join us over at tracyoutsuka.com. Thank you so much for listening, and I will see you here next week. You've been listening to the ADHD for Smartass Women podcast. I'm your host, Tracy Outsuka, and we're available on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Not coincidentally, ADHD for Smartass Women, it's also the name of our free Facebook group. We're a totally smartass community of successful, ambitious women who share our ADHD wins, questions, and workarounds. Join us at tracyoutsuka.com, where you can also find more information on our Your ADHD Brain is A-OK system. I spy a happier life for us, and I'll see you again next week.